Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Eva Maria Mushik about her book titled Building States, the United Nations Development and Decolonization from 1945 to 1965 from Columbia University Press in 2022. This is an absolutely fascinating book that looks at this really crucial period um, of UN history and really decolonial history. Um, and Dr. Mushik argues that the UN played a key role in the proliferation and reinvention, really, of the concept of a nation state and its role in the post-war era um, through the processes that the UN was involved with around uh, decolonization, state building, all sorts of things that I'm sure we're going to get into. Um, so this is a really interesting book that I think adds a lot of um, nuance and complexity and different perspectives uh, to history that in some... that a lot of us, I think, are quite interested in. So, um, Eva, I'm really happy to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much, Miranda. Thank you for having me. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. Thank you. So I'm a historian and I um, currently work at the University of Vienna, where I'm um, working at the Department of Development Studies. And um, I've long been interested in the history of development, which uh, perhaps started with an exchanger abroad in Ecuador during high school and an interest in global inequalities. And that kind of very naively uh, led me to an interest in the topic of international development. And then um, at the University of Berlin, where I did my undergrads um, and, and master's degree also, I, I kind of discovered the more complicated history of international development, especially its entanglement with colonial history. So that was something that I was broadly interested in and um, wanted to write um, a dissertation about. And when I was about to start the dissertation at New York University, um, a lot of interesting work had just come out on the history of international organizations. I'm thinking of Susan Peterson's work and, and Mark Mazauer and um, how they explored the relationship between empire and international organizations and basically argued that both um, the League of Nations and the UN were supposed to protect the interests of empire. But then, of course, intentions are one one thing and um, organizations develop a life of their own. So what I wanted to explore for the case of the UN um, was how um, the organization basically developed a life um, of its own and how did they navigate um, this imperial legacy and mandate on the one hand and this um, commitment to self-determination and state sovereignty on the other, which was inscribed in the UN Charter, the founding document. And I guess this is um, all a bit abstract, but um, there was also a very um, practical reason for me to write this particular book, which was um, that my first daughter had been born the year before I finished my qualifying exams at NYU. So the exams that basically um, enable you or allow you to proceed with a dissertation. And since my daughter was so small at the time, it didn't really seem feasible to go abroad for a year to do archival um, work as, as most of my peers did at the time. And since I was based in New York, I thought focusing on the UN um, 
would allow me to to um, circum circumvent that problem and and write something of a local history, if you will, on a global topic. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I used the UN archives myself in my work, um, and unfortunately, it was not based in New York, so I did have to travel to the archives. Um, but they were really cool archives. So having them right on your doorstep and sort of um, investigating them makes a lot of sense. So thank you for explaining kind of the multiple different things that led to the project, because I think that's more true for most of us. There's not just one reason that you end up with the research question. Um, there's lots of things that go into it. I so, knew that. Yeah, sorry. sorry go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, I, I just mean in in different kind of settings, you don't talk too much, I suppose, about the um, personal considerations that are involved as well um, in those uh and coming up with research questions or bigger research projects as well. So, but it's important. Yeah, because yeah, we all have right, them. Right. Um, so, thank you yeah, for sharing that. Sure. Um, I think that's a really important <laughs> perspective, particularly. Uh, I know that we'll have listeners that are perhaps um, thinking about their PhD topics or their next research project. Um, so, that's quite helpful. But I also obviously want to talk about the content of the book after all this investigation in the archives. Um, so, unfortunately, we're obviously not going to be able to go into all the detail of the book, um, which is to be honest, quite sad, because even in the case studies alone, they're absolutely fascinating. So I do have to highlight that for listeners. Um, but we'll, we'll hopefully do like, you know, a bit of a highlights tour or something to kind of get the main points, I think. Um, but I think that we need to start with some foundation. So the first one is, um, what does development mean? This is a really key term. And it's, you, you demonstrate in the book that like, this wasn't kind of a given what it meant, that there were kind of discussions around it um, and that the role of particular UN officials during this early period of kind of figuring out what the UN was going to do and how it was going to do it. Um, so can you tell us about kind of what does development mean to UN officials in this period? What does that have to do with decolonization? Right. So, I mean, that's a good question. I think that was actually one of the starting points that I had as well, or one of the um, starting assumptions that it wasn't as clear um, cut what it what development meant at the time that there were perhaps more discussions going on. I mean, it's not it's not clear now. Right. So then as now it, it um, meant different things to different people. But um, I, I thought before the UN development program um, was uh, um, established in 1965, before that time period, basically things were much more up for debate. So it would be an interesting um, period to focus on. And um, and as I said, uh, uh, there was no consensus at the time. So for example, you had people like Alva Myrdal, um, the Swedish sociologist who would later um, receive a Nobel Prize and who then worked at the UN Secretariat. And for her, development basically meant mitigating the problematic social effects um, that could accompany industrialization or economic exploitation, if you will. And others, on the other hand, understood development very much to mean um, to foster economic growth, to then be able to pay for social programs, education and health and so on. But um, so for all their differences, the UN staff that I that I cover in the book um, generally perceived development as a very complex process. So it wasn't a question of um, just focusing on, um, uh, on 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 say economic growth, but um, that you had to look at political, social, and educational um, progress as well. And they they all believed at the time and um, weren't so unique in this. I suppose that this uh, multifaceted process could also be sped up um, by government intervention. So it could be something. Um, that uh, people, especially governments, could have an impact on and um, speed up. Yeah. And yeah. Well, and one of the things that you talk about in the book is kind of um, the idea that these interventions, right, um, sort of were seen in a lot of different senses, because this is, of course, when like sovereignty is being debated um, and sort of who gets to do what was very much uh, not set in stone. And you show that these officials um, were very much thinking about kind of idea of interventions and especially sort of technical assistance and that this was something that they were pitching as being apolitical that it wasn't an infringement on sovereignty necessarily um how did that debate go were people persuaded um kind of how does this idea of technical assistance being apolitical fare in these early discussions mm -hmm. um so i mean it, it depends which is <laughs> 
historian's favorite answer, right? But um, as not all governments obviously agreed that that technical assistance um, was was an apolitical service. So, for example, the Soviet Union until um, Stalin's death um, denounced the UN technical assistance programs as a form of um, capitalist exploitation, as they put it. And and even after '53, they did participate in these in these programs, but never to the same degree of of Western states. And with regard to specific um, initiatives that I talk in the book, again, there's uh, this complaint that um, this is uh, a form of interference in in the business uh, of sovereign states and that this shouldn't happen. But uh, the this idea of technical assistance wasn't something that um, UN officials came up with. I mean, it's there existed programs like this already in the in the um, interwar period and during World War II as well, and it's also not um, something that that Western officials had come up with. But within um, the UN, that such services existed existed. Sorry, was actually the result of a campaign of um, poorer countries um, from from the very first General Assembly session onwards, arguing that attention should be paid to the problem of underdevelopment as it was then framed and that international resources should be committed to overcome this problem that um, countries like Brazil and and so on that had um, invested some resources to reconstruction efforts mostly focused on um, uh, Europe uh, as a result uh, or in, in, in after World War II that they should now also um, benefit from international cooperation and um, technical assistance was one thing that all countries uh, could agree on that would um, uh, one one form of um, of assistance that was acceptable to countries at the time because the thinking was ideally it's a form of um, advisory assistance and the um, governments in charge can can um, decide whether to accept or not um, whether on whether to accept or not to follow the advice being provided by um, by these technical experts that were dispatched to uh, countries who would have to request this kind of assistance also. So it wasn't something that would be imposed on countries without them um, asking for it, basically. So uh, it's not necessarily um, something that was sold as as apolitical by um, these Western officials and civil servants, and um, but but something. Um, that emerged out of this uh, campaign, basically, by uh, poorer member states um, at the UN. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, to what extent these services were uh, new versus continuations of things that had existed before? As I said, some some service, the League of Nations had already pioneered um different uh, technical assistance missions in the in the interwar period. And then the ILO too, which um, was also born after World War One, had um, dispatched technical assistance missions um, both in the interwar period and during World War Two to, um, uh, especially also to to industries that were um, uh, considered vital for the for the war effort. So I, I think during World War Two there was an increase in in these types of um, uh, services. But um, what I think is different um, after World War II is that there's more of an effort to um, sort of um, bring these different kinds of services that you have, for example, on on labor regulation or on um, fishing industries, to um, bring them all together and to uh, integrate them into a comprehensive, um, all-encompassing development um, plan which is something that becomes more and more popular after World War II. So there's definitely um, a continuation. This this wasn't the new thing that UN officials at the time also sometimes presented it to be, but there's um, a change in uh, the extent uh, of, of this being provided and also the way um, it was approached and, um, and framed to, to member states. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it's really interesting just to understand kind of which bits are new and which aren't, especially as um, as the book continues, you talk about kind of 
new things that are being done. Um, so to understand sort of within the context is very helpful. I'd love to then get into kind of some of the practical things um, that were done. And uh, you mentioned the charter, and that is a really key part of the UN. Um, and the secretariat, which you focus on, um, was quite involved in kind of the charter and discussions around what does the charter mean, etc. Uh, and obviously, one of the parts of the charter that got a lot of attention in this period was about kind of what are the implications for what it says in the charter that how, what impact does this have on the idea of decolonization? Because um, they're kind of, as you describe in the book, some like maybe not conflicting things. I don't know if that would be too harsh, but kind of room for debate, I suppose. Um, so can you tell us a bit about how the Secretariat specifically kind of as that piece of the UN um, was involved in these discussions about kind of what the charter means for decolonization? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't um, know that people at the time would have even used the, the term decolonization that, that we now use. But what was definitely open um, um, when it came to the charter was um, um, the role of the UN with regards uh, to the colonial world. So on the, on the one hand, it gave um, people who were arguing for um, uh, immediate independence for colonies um, ammunition, so to say, and on the other hand, it also um, um, internationalized this idea that uh, colonialism was a form of international um, trusteeship, trusteeship, sorry, for the benefit of the um, people inhabiting colonies. So um, if this is somewhat abstract, um, there are basically um, two, two parts in the charter um, that explicitly refer to colonies. Um, on the one hand, you have this section um, on so-called non-self-governing ter- territories as colonies were, were termed by the UN. Um, this is chapter 11. And, and here, um, member states at, at San Francisco, where the um, UN charter was finalized, agreed that the in- inhabitants of, um, that the interest of the inhabitants of these territories was paramount and that their well-being should be promoted by those who assumed the um, responsibilities of administration, as it was put. So colonial rule was um, basically reframed as administration, which is also interesting in itself. And um, the charter said that the colonial powers, the administrating authorities in, in UN um, lingo were supposed to, on the one hand, protect uh, inhabitants in those territories against abuses, but also um, promote their political, economic, social and educational advancement. Um, and the Charter also said that um, promises would not suffice, but that uh, these um, colonial powers uh, would have to report on the measures um, and progress on these issues to the Secretary General. So that was one important section in the Charter relating to the colonial world. And on the other hand, she also had a section on the UN trusteeship system, which um, established a more direct UN UN oversight over um, the administration or rule of select colonies, so-called UN trust territories, which had um, previously been supervised by the League of Nations uh, under the mandate system. And at the UN, um, that was a main organ, the UN Trusteeship Council tasked with supervising the supposed progress in those territories based on reports that administering authorities or colonial powers submitted um, to the UN, but also based on petitions that people from those territories sent to New York and based on the reports of visiting missions that the UN dispatched to those territories. And now, uh, what was the role of the UN Secretariat in all this, which is what I was interested in, um, with regard to colonial rule more generally, which is what this first um, section focused on, the Declaration on Non-Self-Governing Territories. Um, For one thing, the Secretariat worked with national delegations at the UN to set up a committee uh, within the General Assembly that would discuss um, the the information that colonial powers had to submit to the Secretary General on the supposed um, progress they achieved in their in their colonies, and, and it doesn't perhaps doesn't sound as much, but initially um, the colonial powers didn't even want to submit any information at all uh, on um, matters going on in, in the colonies because they, they said this was um, um, uh, um, a sovereign sovereign issue, so to say. So this this mechanism, as as my colleague um, Jessica Pearson has also argued um, open colonial rule up to international 
scrutiny. And uh, to agree to a degree, you already had that with the uh, League of Nations mandate system, but there it was really restricted to um, a select number of colonies. Whereas now with the UN, um, uh, colonies, dependencies uh, more generally were opened up to this kind of international scrutiny. And um, uh, part of what the uh, Secretariat did was framing how progress in these colonies would be defined by um, basically formulating the questionnaires on the basis of which governments submitted their reports. So that was um, one thing. And in the case of the trust territories, this one short answer is that they would have liked to play more of a prominent role in kind of guiding the progress in these territories. But um, aside from the former Italian colonies, that wasn't um, generally the case. And um, here too, though, they framed how progress was defined with the formulation of these questionnaires, but also um, with um, those visiting missions um, reports. And of course, they also had a, a kind of gatekeeping function um, relating to the voices that would be heard on the matter as they selected and categorized the petitions that were sent to the UN from um, trust territories. Thank you for explaining that. I, I, I'm really glad you highlighted kind of the idea of it doesn't sound like a big deal, but right? Um, because it is a massive deal, right? The, the changing the basic premise from if this is your colony, it's no one's business but yours to, oh, actually, you need to submit reports on these things. Um, and you need to submit them regularly. And they're going to kind of essentially be cross examined against what the other empires are submitting. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that practices on the ground suddenly get magically better. Um, but, you know, as we talk about with any sort of problem solving, the first thing is to like know what is actually happening. Um, and that's a really big step forward. So um, might you be able to give us sort of like one example of a particular thing that um, the Secretariat was interested in finding out from these reports or a particular area that they focused on maybe? Mm, I think what's, what's interesting about these questionnaires is perhaps not so much um, any particular new items that were put in, on the agenda, but just how um, expansive and detailed they were that um, the, the colonial powers had to report on on um, anything really um, from from law to um, health services to educational services to um, social programs, and I, I think all in all, it were a um, uh, hundred to a hundred and fifty questions that they had to report on. So it wasn't necessarily. Um, uh, a particular area that was um, brought to the table by the secretariat, but just the level of detail that um, colonial powers were um, required or, or prodded to um, to re report about. And um, yeah, I think uh, I mean in 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 the the literature on on the UN and decolonization, or perhaps more so, obviously in UN promotional material, there's often a tendency to perhaps exaggerate the role that the UN played with regard to decolonization. But I think one thing one can safely say based on, on these um, mechanisms is that um, you had this opening up of colonial rule to international scrutiny and that um, this made uh, colonial rule in the post-war period more, more cumbersome ultimately and uh, in that sense, perhaps contributed to the outcome of, of these um, cost-benefit analyses also that uh, many col colonial powers undertook during that period with regard to colonial rule. Mm, very important to highlight. Thank you. Um, I found that section of the book absolutely fascinating because um, it's kind of one thing to know that, oh, yeah, the UN collects lots of reports and data and another to actually think through the implications of that. Um, so I do want to move on to the section of the book where you talk about your case studies um, which were really cool, as I said at the beginning of the interview. Um, and I wonder if you can first help us understand, obviously, case selection is really tricky when doing research. So how did you choose to focus on Libya, Somaliland, Bolivia, and the Congo for your case studies? Right. And um, right. so I think it's also different from discipline to discipline, right? How um, Absolutely. Uh, how case studies are being chosen and so on. And now that I'm, most of my colleagues are uh, social scientists um, rather than coming from the humanities as, as with previous uh, positions that I held, I, I definitely think about it in a different way. And I, I could give you a very 
uh, polished answer now that rationally explains the selection in hindsight. But um, I think, uh, and since you said that um, perhaps some PhD students are listening in on this or um, MA students as well, that um, might be helpful also to admit that for a very long time, I wasn't at all certain at uh, what shape the book would take and what cases I would um, focus on. And a, and a colleague actually recently sent me an early research proposal that I came up um, with when I started to work on the dissertation and the project described in that proposal uh, actually had very little to do with the actual shape of the book that came out. So um, going in, I just, I'm sure to a lot of listeners. So thank you for sharing that. To remember, um, I think w w when obsessing about uh, where to go next, especially at the beginning of, of research projects, that it's also okay and actually something desirable not to have the exact shape of what you're going to write at the very beginning, right? Because otherwise, why bother with the investigation? Okay, so, but sorry <laughs> for the long digression, but... Um, going in, I had a very basic question about... Um, as I said, how did the UN um, navigate this this tension of its imperial legacy on the one hand between trusteeship in the name of development and expertise and um, self-determination and respect for state sovereignty on the other hand? And, and what role did the organization play in decolonization? And um, one um, uh, case I, I focused on was um, the UN operations in the Congo in the early 60s. And that was um, sort of an obvious choice because it loomed large in all writing about the UN um, and decolonization as a sort of make or break moment about um, the role that the organization would play in, in um, processes of decolonization. And then um, the former Italian colonies, which I also looked at Libya and Somaliland, were interesting too, because here um, the UN was really hands-on involved in the decolonization processes. Um, which was kind of an, an accident of history, if you will, um, and a result of the inability of the victorious powers of World War II to agree on the fate of these colonies, um, which meant that the decision, what was supposed to be, um, happen with them, was passed on to the General Assembly, which decided to have a UN presence on the ground to um, guide the decolonization process. And um, the choice of Bolivia, I guess, was less straightforward, but I had read in some um, secondary literature and also memoirs of, of UN officials that during the 1950s, the UN essentially took over the government administration um, for a time, which is not quite true, but this is how um, it was portrayed. And that um, sounded like a very extreme um, example of the UN assuming trusteeship in the name of development. And since no one um, seemed to have really looked into this episode. I was really curious to explore it. And then um, once I uh, delved into the records, there were also um, cross-references of people in uh, Libya, say, talking about this experiment going on at, in Bolivia at the time, but also UN officials in, in the Congo um, referring back to um, Bolivia, for example, and building on that experience. So there were some some connections between these cases. Um, yeah, but it uh, it took me a while to um, to decide on uh, what to focus on specifically. But uh, one thing that I did want to do was try to get away from debates that were. Uh, or not so much get away from debates um, that were going on um, in New York, but see how they were affected by um, this engagement of UN personnel in um, uh, missions abroad or in uh, negotiations abroad in, in member states, but also uh, colonies at the time. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I mean, it does come across in the book as a very kind of useful collection of cases that highlight different aspects of what was happening. Um, but it is also helpful to kind of understand like, oh yeah, case selection is hard. <laughs> like it's not something that has some sort of inevitable conclusion. Um, and it is very much a process. Um, so I think that's useful to hear. Um, I would like to kind of ask little bits about the case studies. Um, sadly, again, we're not going to be able to cover all of it, but uh, we can start off in Libya. And um, if you can tell us about, uh, so the UN secretary officials providing technical assistance in Libya 
Um, and you argue that this particular um, experience for secretariat officials really influenced how the UN thought about the practice of state building and what it meant to do state building. Um, so kind of what happened in Libya that influenced this kind of overall con- conceptual thinking for the UN? Mm-hmm. Well, um, so so what I think changed about the conception of, of state building or well, let's start another way. I guess um, I think it, uh, or what I would argue is that it really only became a, a process and a practice involving all sorts of um, international technical experts in in the post-war um, period, and and um, this was partly related to the changing expectations that people had with regard to states during the periods that they were expected to engage in all um, different areas of public. Um, life that uh, hadn't necessarily been the case before but um, the problem in Libya Libya as um, UN officials perceived it was basically how to build a modern independent state within two years because the um, decision by the General Assembly had been reached um, in, in late 1949 and the official independent state was already given as well um, two years later and um, at first, uh, this is also what um, delegates at the General Assembly were concerned about, that um, within this period, the country would have to um, receive a constitution, a parliament, a government, uh, or especially a government. Um, but uh, aside from, from these concerns, UN officials on the ground, um, there was a, a UN commissioner um, in, in Tripoli, and aside from these concerns about forming a government and coming up with a constitution for the country, uh, um, the, the commissioner and his staff soon became more concerned, actually, not so much with this, this framework, but the economic and administrative basis on which the future state could operate. So first they organized survey missions um, to look into questions of uh, banking and land tenure, education, health services, and so on. And then um, they also uh, began to call on the UN and, and its member states more so to invest um, in assistance in, in these different fields to help the future state operate beyond um, independence. So state building also became something that was not necessarily completed upon independence, but something that would go on for many years um, beyond uh, the formal independent state. And what kind of from that experience did the UN then take to kind of other instances? Or to what extent was Libya like a complete outlier? And they're like, never again, we will never attempt this. <laughs> well, I, I think um, to, to, to a degree, Libya was um, uh, um, a moment for the UN to dream about a more um, expansive role for the organization because they were hoping um, to provide a sort of uh, a head economist who would um, guide the country's development um, uh, plan and um, for um, uh, UN personnel to work in very senior positions within the uh, Libyan administration or alongside the Libyan administration and um, to guide the country's progress step by step. And that didn't happen because... Uh, um, uh, particularly uh, British officials, but also um, French officials um, continued to uh, to work in some of the um, key positions within the Libyan administration. But uh, the those those um, plans they they came up with and um, the the hopes for um, UN officials guiding development um, through key positions within the administration, that was something that they came back um, to in, in different um, missions as well. Uh, Bolivia was um, something that was going on um, sort of at the, at the same time, but then also um, in, in the Congo, this was something that um, 
that that they drew on. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So let's let's go then to Bolivia. Um, and Bolivia's mission, I admit, I definitely didn't know um, very much about it, though my background's mainly in African history, so I suppose fair enough. Um, but I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about kind of the UN's proposed plan for assisting Bolivia and kind of what the reactions were, especially given... Um, how much sort of change there was on the Bolivian government side in this time period? So um, what I what I focused on um, uh, for Bolivia was the the, the so-called Kinley side proposal, Kinley side uh, plan named after um, a Canadian civil servant who um, went on a, on a UN survey mission to Bolivia in um, the late 1940s and. Um, wrote a very long report, had a number of uh, officials with him, a number of experts for, for different um, different aspects. But what it what it came down to was him basically saying that to the Bolivians, you've been unable to um, govern yourself successfully for the past 125 years. There was a frequent turnover of government, all in all, um, 60 different presidents and therefore no stability. And um, we can do it for you. We can ensure a measure of um, administrative or government stability and we'll make the very best use of your amazing natural resources. So as you can imagine, that uh, proposal didn't go down very well in that form. And um, one factor, I suppose, was also that uh, the UN and the US were often conflated by Bolivians, but also um, others in Latin America at the time. So rejecting um, this offer by the UN, which was framed as assistance in um, public administration or administrative assistance, was also um, um, uh, a rejection, if you will, of US meddling. I think that was also part of the equation. Why was it accepted anyway by such different um, governments? I can only um, speculate because I uh, concentrated mainly on the on the UN side and UN sources. But um, um, for the authoritarian government in power, um, when the first UN experts uh, arrived, this was probably also about uh, losing support and staff amid what, what was basically a civil war and um, the UN providing some some welcome relief in that situation. And then um, you had the revolutionary um, left-wing Movimento Nacional Revolucionario take over in, the, in 1952. And they were, on the other hand, they had denounced the, U- the UN plan as an infringement of sovereignty. But on the other hand, they were seriously committed to the goal of development and hopeful um, that the UN might support their efforts and perhaps even... Um, that this UN support might lead to US support. And um, if that was the strategy, it, um, to a degree, it also paid off because US officials were indeed um, willing to give this uh, experiment in development by the MNR, as it was then called a chance, despite its nationalization platform and so on. And um, Washington dealing very differently with other left-wing governments in the hemisphere at the time. Hmm. Very complicated, um, but really interesting as well. Like even just that of kind of how do you take a plan and negotiate it with lots of different governments going on, um, regardless of what the plan is, and then adding in the details of the plan and the US element, etc. Um, definitely kind of 
I think demonstrates the complexity of this time period um, and how like none of this was set in stone. And maybe today we think of some UN policies as being kind of, oh yeah, this is what always happens. Um, and I think this book and in some senses, this case in particular um, is a really helpful way of being like, oh yeah, but at some point this all had to be figured out. <laughs> um, and that has implications. So the obvious case, your last one um, that has implications for today is the Congo. You've mentioned that a little bit already. Um, and I was wondering if you could kind of similarly to with Bolivia, help us understand how was the kind of operation that eventually ends up the, happening on the ground um, with the UN in the Congo? How was that mission? How, how is it possible that that mission could be so different from what the Congo actually originally requested? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's, it's similar with... Um... With Bolivia, that uh, I primar- par- primarily focused on the UN side of the of the story, but what I gathered from the sources was um, the Congolese officials, um, even before independence, were primarily interested in UN military assistance, so um, that they wouldn't be reliant on Belgian military personnel. And once um, the post-independence conflict broke out. Um, to stop Katangas and then later uh, Kazai's secession. But uh, what the UN um, sought to provide instead, or, or rather perhaps in addition to the military's um, support and troops, was essentially a parallel government um, structure that could operate independently of the Gong- Congolese one and, and take care of public services that um, broke down with the retreat of um, the Belgian um, the Belgians. And um, again, UN officials had dreamed of, of such a program in the former Italian colonies and perhaps with regard to um, Bolivia as well. But in the Congo, they really came close to um, realizing that um, technocratic rule with, with disastrous consequences, obviously, for the Congo and the UN as well. And it very much um, demonstrated the limits of UN capabilities to undertake such um efforts um, and and no similar efforts really were undertaken until the end of the Cold War when uh, however this kind of developmental peacekeeping because it was both right on the one hand um, you had uh, the um, military side of uh, the operation and on the other hand this very large um, um, uh, um, sorry civil um, services and civil operations um, providing teachers and, and doctors and so on. And um, this kind of combination was was really new at the time and, and pioneered um, in the 60s. Not really tried again, I think, until the end of the Cold War, but then um, taken to new heights. Very much so. Um, and, and why was it that the UN Secretariat officials were kind of so set on the idea of a technocratic solution being the best thing for sort of state building, sovereignty, becoming independent, etc. Hmm, it's, <laughs> it's a tough question. Why were they so set on uh, finding a technocratic uh, solution to this? Yeah, because well, there, there was yeah. such an emphasis across the cases of kind of like, as long as we can sort public administration, like that will be the thing that will make all of this work. I mean, Where I guess, did kind of that belief yeah. come from? I guess it wasn't just that. There were also, of course, um, political negotiations going on at the same time that they that they were invested in. But um, the hope was that uh, uh, one thing you, you had to invest in um, parallel to that was basically just keeping um, uh, public services going to um, avoid a complete... Uh, breakdown of, of the country and um, humanitarian disaster and so on. And uh, I mean, I think that's um, thinking isn't so hard to um, um, to un- to understand that there, uh, I think it would make sense to today's listeners as well, but then the jump from assuming that um, people who had um, no idea about the Congo whatsoever, being transplanted all of a sudden from New York um, to take over um, um, very important um, positions in the country sort of overnight is more of, of um, uh, um, how do you say, leap of, leap of thought that's very hard to, 
to understand in hindsight or from from our perspective today. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, I think one of the things that can be particularly helpful for um, understanding history that has implications for what we're dealing with today is understanding the things that didn't happen. (laughs) Um, And obviously, we've talked about your case studies where the UN does go and do things. But you also talk about in the book, um, a proposal that doesn't really seem to have ever gotten off the ground for something called the International Administrative Service. So kind of why was this being pushed by the Secretariat? um, And what did it, what was the argument around what it had to do with decolonization? Mm -hmm. So um, this was a proposal made in 1956 uh, to dispatch international administrators to newly independent states to help them manage the um, state, their state bureaucracies until they could do so themselves. The thinking behind it being that not enough, um, there were not enough trained nationals, basically, because in some cases decolonizations, uh, decolonization happened much faster than um, people on different sides uh, would have expected in, in the um, 1950s. And um, the idea was that if uh, you had international personnel coming in, these newly independent states wouldn't necessarily have to rely on on former colonial um, officials in the meantime, which many of them did, and and thus ensure um, uh, a degree of um, independence, if you will, or or non-dependence at least, and also allow the UN at the same time to steer um, development in in what they perceived as as the right direction, i.e. Um, uh, um, social democratic capitalist um, path of development. And um, as you already said, this was more of a hope than a reality. Uh, the the um, um, program was established under the name um, of OPEX, um, uh, for operational uh, a UN program for operational and executive personnel, but it didn't become this um, huge service that um, Hammarskjöld and others had had wanted it to be. So it remained comparatively small and insignificant. Um, but I um, I would argue that it was important, nevertheless, because in in negotiating this proposal, this took several years and it went through. Um, a lot of different um, UN um, committees and um, and fora, and in negotiating this proposal, governments essentially reframed what was acceptable in terms of technical assistance, i.e., that it wasn't just advisory services, but that outside personnel um, could actually take over um, key functions that would have otherwise um, been considered too too sensitive for outside interference. So, in a sense, it also um, changed how governments thought about um, how states could operate, namely by drawing on outside assistance in um, the realms of government, uh, governance also. Mm. As I said, I think it's, it's really helpful to understand things that didn't necessarily become as big a thing as they were proposed to be. And it's for exactly those reasons. Like just because something doesn't end up the way the kind of process it goes through still can kind of tell us a lot. Um, So thank you for explaining that. Um, As we come towards kind of the end of the book and some of the um, arguments, I mean, you've already been mentioning, obviously, the arguments you're making. But one of the arguments I wanted to ask about um, was about how uh, this process, these processes of technical assistance from the UN um, being part of paths to independence or um, consolidating independence for countries that were formerly colonized, how does this how is this related to kind of the debate around uh sort of should things be nation states should nation states be how we organize things um especially as we're talking about decolonial processes so can you kind of tell us about the role of un technical assistance in these wider debates about what should come out of decolonization right um yeah that's that's a big one and i know i mean i set myself up for it but um, that there was uh, one um, uh, thought going into the project also that there was a lot of interesting research at the time on, on decolonization uh, showing that uh, in the 50s, 60s um, and in the, sorry, 40s, 50s and 60s, it wasn't at all clear, right, um, that decolonization would result in this world of nominally independent nation states that we now take for granted and that there were 
other ideas about possible outcomes um, ranging from regional federation. Some of them were tried and also um, ideas about a closer association between um, former colonial powers and former colonies, ideally on equal footing and so on. So um, in that, in what sense did the UN contribute to this outcome that we now see, that we now take for granted? And one factor, I think, were um, the debates going on um, within the General Assembly and so on at the time, how political progress was framed there by member states and, and decided, um, for example, with, re- uh, with regards to uh, Libya and Somaliland. And another f- factor was also the institutional logic of the organization where um, member states who have a say uh, represent nominal nation states. And then finally, um, international technical assistance initiatives uh, covered in the book too, I think, were a factor in that they um, made nominal independence possible and practicable for states um, with uh, very little resources, um, such as the ones that, that I discuss in more detail in the book. But I, I mean, it's um, it's still an, a very interesting question, I think, and certainly not the last words uh, what I uh, attempted to contribute to that debate contributions to debates are still useful and important for us. Um, I don't think any of us ever have the final word on anything. Um, So thank you for explaining that. Again, I don't think it's necessarily an aspect that we might think of when we think about kind of what happens with decolonization, what's the role of the UN, Um, kind of some of these like practical elements of technical assistance maybe don't seem connected. But I think a really important contribution of the book is showing that it it's not just connected, it's like a really key part of it um, and the people involved in these debates. Um, so I think that that's a really useful contribution. We None of us are ever going to have answers to anything. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so now that the book is done, um, what are you working on next? Um, so right now I'm, I'm very interested in the so-called uh, lost decade of development of the 1980s and the role that international financial institutions actually played during that period. Um, So again, I'm interested in the internal dynamics within these institutions, how and and what did they learn from from their engagement abroad over time. And another thing that I'm particularly fascinated in um, uh, with regards to that period is also the widespread protests to um, or against structural adjustment programs that you saw at the time. So in Berlin in 1988, for example, there were um, 10,000s of people taking to the streets um, to protest against these um, programs, which um, yeah, I think um, somehow gets lost in, in uh, our understanding of, of the 1980s and um, the uh, neoliberal turn, if you will, being either imposed or there not being really an alternative at the time. So one thing that I'm interested in is uh, learning more about um, the contestations of this of this term at the time, both at within international organizations, but also um, very publicly on, on the streets at different places. Ooh, that sounds fascinating. Ooh, that sounds quite fun. Cool. All right. Well, while you are off diving into what sounds like a very fascinating project, um, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which again is titled Building States, the United Nations Development and Decolonization 1945 to 1965 from Columbia University Press in 2022. Um, Dr. Eva Maria Mushik, thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your work with us. Thank you so much, Miranda. Thank you for having me.